So welcome to the last of this series of lectures on England's reformations and their legacies. In this series, I've told a set of distinct, but I hope reasonably coherent stories about the religious changes that convulsed 16th century England and whose aftershocks were felt for, for, for centuries. But this final story is not so straightforward. Many of my protagonists today wouldn't have recognized each other as brethren. The connections that I'll be drawing between them are often speculative at best. And at the time, and indeed since, they've all too often looked merely like the assorted debris of the Reformation, pieces that were flung out because they didn't or wouldn't fit, fringe extremists and irrelevant curiosities. My task this evening is to try to persuade you that this cast of misfits and cranks adds up to a story. I want to persuade you, in fact, that England had a radical reformation. For most of the last 500 years, we've not seen it that way. The radical reformation is a term that historians began using in earnest in the 1960s. Another historian of that period talked, I think, revealingly about the left wing of the reformation. And they were talking, above all, about a series of movements that emerged in Europe in the, 19, uh, the 1520s, hard on the heels of Martin Luther's quarrel with the papacy. Because from the very start, Luther was beset by over-enthusiastic allies who wanted to take his ideas further than he did, or to turn them in subtly or sharply different directions. And he was quickly denouncing these people as fanatics whose foolish zeal and depravity had led them headlong into danger, dangerous error. And these fanatics came to be associated with two things above all one theological innovation and one political stance. The theological innovation is the view that only adults who choose to make a profession of Christian faith should be baptized, rather than all infants being baptized uh, very soon after their birth. The first adult baptisms that we know of took place in Zurich, in 1525. This lady is not actually being baptized. She is about to be executed by drowning for the crime of being baptized as an adult. And if that seems to you like an overreaction, well, yes, but this was a more provocative and consequential matter than it might seem to modern ears for two reasons. First of all, it means that a church can't be a universal, all-embracing community like the medieval Catholic Church or the post-Reformation Church of England aspired to be, churches into which the whole nation is born by default. Because a church that practices adult baptism is one that requires a positive choice to join it and must therefore exclude a portion, probably a large majority, of the people. And in a world where it's assumed that religious unity is the underpinning of social and political harmony, a movement whose very basis means that it divides is genuinely frightening. And secondly, this decision to reject infant baptism opens a Pandora's box of other alarming possibilities. 
The simplest reason to reject infant baptism is that the Bible never mentions the practice. Um, but ancient Christian communities certainly were baptizing infants from very early on, as early as the second century of the modern era. So if you reject infant baptism as an error, then you're also committed to saying that the early Christian church went badly astray very quickly. And that presumably means that all the other major decisions the early church made are up for grabs as well. What becomes of the doctrine of the Trinity or the great disputes over the nature of Jesus Christ? Even the question of what counts as part of the Bible, part of the canon of scripture itself. These are fundamental questions about the essence of Christianity. Luther and the other respectable reformers badly want not to reopen them. So denying infant baptism is about more than just a splash of water. This is the theological equivalent of dousing a church with petrol and sauntering around flicking matches. And as I said, alongside the theological threat, there's a political one. Those first adult baptisms in Zurich took place in the middle of a vast peasant rebellion the largest mass rising in European history before the French Revolution, the so-called Peasants' War of 1524 to 5, in which long-standing local and secular grievances were given new force by the revolutionary implications of Luther's ideas and the reckless, apocalyptic radicalism of preachers who chose to press those implications much further in the direction of social and political change than Luther himself was ever willing to countenance. The rebellious peasants were eventually defeated. There are a series of battlefield massacres, but there's worse to come. In 1534, a set of prophecies led to a number of radicals converging on the Western German city of Münster, declaring an apocalyptic kingdom there, trying to create a perfect new community of goods, polygamy, very violently enforced conformity, Eventually, the besieging armies bring the experiment to a bloody end. Münster becomes a byword for the radicals. It's the 9-11 of its age, a dreadful warning, destined always to be overheeded. And the radicals come to be called Anabaptists, literally rebaptizers, because... They insisted on taking people who'd been properly baptized as infants and doing it again, even though all Christians agree that the sacrament of baptism is a once-in-a-lifetime, unrepeatable event. Now, of course, the radicals didn't believe that dunking a baby in water is real baptism. So calling them Anabaptists is saying that they're wrong. It's a term of abuse. But that's what happens to feared and hated minorities. They were ferociously persecuted by Catholics and Protestants alike. They were reduced to isolated communes, and their few descendants eventually found refuge in North America. In particular, they hardly set foot on English soil. In the wake of the Münster catastrophe, there were scares about Dutch Anabaptists crossing the water to England. Henry VIII regarded the prospect with genuine horror, and his evangelical chief minister, Thomas Cromwell, was absolutely at one with him on this. As many as two dozen Netherlanders were rounded up and executed on the charge of Anabaptism in England under Henry VIII 
no one spoke up to defend them, and they have been almost forgotten. You will find no mention of them in Hilary Mantel's otherwise wonderful account of Cromwell's life and work. So the English Anabaptist movement that could have been was strangled in the cradle. And England could claim with a straight face that it simply didn't have a radical reformation. A few eccentrics, maybe. But England's reformation was orderly. It was genteel and it was dignified. A world apart from the fanatics and revolutionaries who beset our always over-excitable European neighbours. But the eccentrics weren't as few in number as you might think, and they were more than a scattering of misfits. If we join some of the dots, a larger picture emerges. To see that picture, we need to adjust our frame in two ways. First of all, to recognize that there is more to the Radical Reformation than just this issue of adult baptism. Maybe the single most famous preacher of the Radical Reformation in Germany, the, the revolutionary Thomas Münzer, who, as this statue shows, was much celebrated by the communist regime in East Germany. Münzer was never directly associated with adult baptism. And that's indicative of the breadth of this movement. And we also need to recognize that the boundary between the radical and the respectable reformations was never as clear or as watertight as those respectable establishments want you to think. The radicals weren't another species or some alien import, easily isolated and eradicated. The seeds of radicalism were scattered throughout what Archbishop Cranmer called this world of reformation. Those seeds might remain dormant for decades, but they could spring into life as soon as the conditions were right. For the first of the dots that I'm going to try to connect for you, we need to look back beyond the conventional beginning of the story, back to the so-called Lollards, a loose movement of religious dissent endemic in parts of 15th and early 16th century England, deriving ultimately from the unorthodox 14th century Oxford theologian John Wycliffe. Now, the importance of the Lollards has often been exaggerated, whether by their contemporaries, who were sometimes hypersensitive about heresy, or by later Protestants, eager to confect a medieval lineage for themselves. So joining the dots here is an old and a dubious game. It is very tempting to discern Lollard involvement in, for example, the Great Peasants' Revolt of 1381, one of whose leaders, the renegade priest John Ball, famously preached that from the beginning all men by nature were created alike and that divisions of wealth and status were but a yoke of bondage to be thrown off. Was he a Lollard? Well, maybe. But regardless, he didn't leave much of a legacy behind him. After a brief flowering in the late 14th, early 15th century, the Lollards were firmly discredited, suppressed, driven to the margins. And yet, some of them hung on grimly for another century or so until the Reformation era itself. These people preached neither John Ball's revolution nor John Wycliffe's sophisticated, idealistic critique of orthodox religion. 
they're a persistent presence in some English towns, London, Bristol, Coventry, and in some rural regions, Buckinghamshire, Essex, Kent, Oxfordshire. But they're not advancing. They seem to have had only one unvarying positive doctrine, the conviction that their English Bibles should be freely available. Beyond that, their beliefs are a series of denials. They generally rejected any notion that a person or a place or an object could be sacred. And so they despised priests as oppressive hypocrites. They ridiculed sacraments, sometimes all sacraments, as meaningless. They reviled images and rites and relics, sometimes even church buildings, as mere monuments to superstition. And they're quite ready to deride traditional Christian doctrines that are linked to those monuments. For example, Wycliffe had criticized the doctrine of transubstantiation, the miracle by which Christ's body and blood are made physically present during the Mass. And he'd done so in subtle philosophical terms. The later Lollards, they claim Wycliffe as their inspiration, but they don't use sophisticated philosophy, they use vicious mockery. In an age which reveres the Virgin Mary, they deride her with sometimes crude innuendos. Um, some of this talk seems to imply deep questions about theological issues such as the nature of Jesus Christ's humanity. But the Lollards aren't trying to raise profound theological issues. They're kicking against the pricks. This century-long discontented rumble doesn't pose a serious threat to the church. The numbers of Lollards are impossible to estimate, but there's not many of them, not even in their strongholds. Most of them carried on attending their parish churches, pulling faces during mass, keeping a stony silence while their neighbors prayed, and then jeering at priestcraft in the alehouse afterwards. They met discreetly in each other's homes to read and pray and argue. They had no churches, they had no ministers, they had no structures apart from informal networks to circulate their forbidden hand-copied books. They've got no more than a handful of sympathizers amongst the gentry and the clergy. The law was enforced against them sporadically. Every so often, a bishop would lead an anti-heresy drive for a few months, often as a means of demonstrating to his orthodox flock that he means business. And these purges would usually consist of rounding up the usual suspects, most of whom will be induced to recant their errors, with only a handful being, like this unfortunate fellow in the barrel, persistent or unlucky enough to be executed. From the perspective of the hierarchy, Lollardy is like a persistent infestation of fleas. It's a nuisance that stubbornly defies extermination. It is not a mortal danger. Now, English Protestants of later centuries often claimed the Lollards as their ancestors. Wycliffe has been called the morning star of the Reformation. But in fact, the Lollards don't seem to have done an awful lot to prepare the way. Not many of the first leaders of the English Reformation had any visible debt to the Lollards. 
the evangelicals' core message, those first reformers' message, is overwhelmingly about faith, the nature of salvation. And that derives entirely from Martin Luther, owes nothing to the Lollards. But the Lollards do recognize these new evangelicals as their brethren. They listen to their preachers, they buy their books, and by the middle of the 16th century, at the latest, Lollardy has just vanished into this growing Protestant movement whose critique of traditional religion is much suppler and more coherent and whose leaders, unlike most Lollards, are ready to seal their faith with their blood. But the Lollards still have a part to play. In the first fragile years of the English Reformation, those Lollard networks provide a ready-made audience and they're vectors for the transmission of forbidden books. More significantly, English evangelicals who are painfully aware that their movement looks like a heretical innovation, not an ancient Christian truth, are keen to seize any form of historical legitimacy they can. And claiming that Lollard heritage is an obvious gambit. Lollards had never made use of the printing press. But from the late 1520s onwards, evangelicals are publishing old Lollard texts like this one as proof that they had a tradition behind them. And that effort continues long after the people, the last people that we can plainly identify as Lollards vanished from the record. The English Reformation's great historian John Fox is an early enthusiast for Lollardy, and his research assembled a good deal of what we now know about the movement. For him, the Lollards are part of a thin but unbroken thread of faithful English Christianity running through the dark centuries of papal tyranny. How far anyone was ever really persuaded by these arguments, we might doubt. But valorizing the Lollards and claiming their heritage as your own has consequences. Lollards and mainstream English Protestants agreed on a lot, the centrality of the Bible, the critique of the church and its rights, but not on everything. Lollardy's absolute rejection of any kind of material holiness is much closer to the sharp-edged, reformed, Calvinist Protestantism that becomes dominant in England from the mid-1540s than to the milder, more Lutheran evangelicals of the 30s. And the Lollard networks may have helped English reformers to make that jump. But many Lollards also held views which went beyond respectable Protestantism of any kind. So let's park them grumbling on the sidelines for a few minutes and look at some of the radical currents starting to surface within the English Reformation itself, which, as we're going to see, pick up on some of those Lollard themes. I think you can group those radical currents, the ones that emerge in the, the century following Henry VIII's break with Rome, into three streams, a perfectionist mystical stream, a separatist one, and a utopian one. And I, I want to look at each of those in turn. Perfectionist mystical radicalism first surfaces in the reign, properly, in the reign of Edward VI in the mid-16th century, when the new Protestant establishment is coalescing around a new hard-edged orthodoxy. 
This is the doctrine of predestination, which holds that some of us are eternally predestined to heaven, others of us to hell, and all of us are powerless to affect that decree in any way. This is a doctrine which has always struck some people as intuitively repugnant. A small movement of so-called free willers, evangelicals who asserted that God lets them choose their own eternal fate, sprung up in parts of rural Kent and elsewhere. During the years of persecution under Queen Mary in the 1550s, the regime actively uses the division between these free willers and the predestinarians to stir up trouble amongst the Protestants, deliberately putting rivals in prison together, delaying the executions of people whom they've identified as particularly divisive. But even with this discreet assistance, the free willers couldn't compete with the predestinarians whose networks and academic credibility and charismatic leaders put them ahead. So the free willers are outmaneuvered and discredited, and by 1558, their movement has disappeared. Just another dot. But if they vanished, their ideas didn't. In the 1560s, a Dutch mystical movement, who also rejected predestination, began to win English adherents. This movement called themselves the family of love. I mean, to modernize, they don't really live up to that wonderfully sinister name. But at the time, they certainly provoked real fear. These familists, as they came to be known, weren't interested in adult versus child baptism. They're like the Lollards. They confirmed, conformed outwardly to established churches but they're spiritualists. They treat orthodox Christian doctrine as an allegory for their own mystical quest, whose purpose isn't salvation in the normal Christian sense, but inner union with Christ, what they called being godded with God. Unlike the free willers of the 1550s, they followed the rejection of predestination through to its full implications. If they're free to choose their own path, Surely that must mean that they're free to choose moral perfection against the standard Christian view of original sin. Maybe, if they're empowered by the Holy Spirit, they could transcend the lumpen business of earthly right and wrong altogether. They could ascend from the darkness of law to the light of grace. There's a wave of panic about familists in the years around 1580, and the sect slowly fades from view after that, but again, their ideas persist. In the 1590s, we find English radicals questioning baptism, not advocating adult baptism, but arguing that Catholic baptism was irredeemably corrupt, that therefore true Christian baptism had completely vanished from the world during the long centuries of popery, and therefore that Christians must abandon baptism completely or indeed any kind of church until God sees fit to send new prophets to renew his people. The last two English people ever to be burned for heresy in 1612 held views of this kind. One of them believed that he himself was the new John the Baptist. Now, these are extreme and eccentric positions, but a broader and more troubling variant of familism would soon emerge. 
a renowned London preacher named John Everard discovered this spiritualist tradition during the 1620s and immersed himself in medieval mystical writings. He came to believe that the Bible was symbolical and figurative, a dead letter which could not be compared to what he called the inward word, the law of God written in our hearts. A scattering of other zealots were becoming disenchanted with the English church's Calvinist consensus and what they saw as its arid moralism. Establishment doctrines might be intellectually neat, but they didn't seem adequate to describe the inward experience of assurance, of grace and free forgiveness that these folks had found. So when that Calvinist consensus is broken up by the counter-revolution led by King Charles I in the 1630s, the spiritualists are ready. Soon, London's underground radical scene is teeming with tiny splinter groups, embracing spiritual union with Christ, downplaying any talk of sin or judgment, even abandoning relics like conventional prayer or faith in bodily resurrection. This might all seem alarmingly unorthodox, but what made it dangerous is that it arose so naturally from mainstream Protestant religion. The mystical texts which Everard was so enthusiastic about were also favorites of Martin Luther's. The notion of grace transcending law is one of Luther's signature doctrines. Talk about free forgiveness, longing for inner assurance, worries about the corruption of inherited Catholic rites, wanting to rise above the carnal and embrace the spiritual. This is all vanilla Protestantism. Mystics and perfectionists aren't a different species from their orthodox neighbors. They are a variant, easily similar enough to interbreed. That's what makes them so frightening. And the same is true of my second strand, the separatists. I've talked before in this series about how the notion of the Church of England, a single universal church embracing the whole nation, matters deeply to the English reformers' sense of themselves. Most of the so-called Puritans who yearned for further reformation nevertheless remained deeply committed to that unified national project. This often involved painful negotiations with their consciences. A recurrent story during the late 16th, early 17th centuries is of the Puritan minister who tries to hold down a church position of some kind then refuses to conform on some point that his conscience can't swallow. You know, it might be vestments, it might be the use of the sign of the cross during baptism or kneeling to receive communion. There, there are plenty of tripwires. Whatever it is, this man is eventually forced to choose between giving way or being deprived of office. Many such people resigned themselves to a miserable half-life, maybe working as private tutors, still attending the worship of a church that they held to be dangerously corrupt. Such people thought of themselves, rightly, as faithful members of the Church of England. But they were also something else. They belonged to a brotherhood of the self-styled godly. They sat in the pews alongside their carnal neighbors. They didn't pull faces, they didn't jeer in alehouses, but the heart of their religion was somewhere else, in the sermons and lectures that they traveled to outside their home parishes, 
in the informal gatherings with sympathetic ministers where they delved deeper into mysteries of the faith or in godly conference with one another in private houses. Like the Lollards before them, they're a church within a church and not much love is lost between them and their conformist neighbours. That final step into schism then is momentous, but it's also natural. If the Puritans are slow to take that step, it's partly because the government takes a very dim view of open separatism. The only foolproof way for an English Protestant to leave the Church of England was to leave England. During the 1570s and 80s, the substantial expatriate communities of English merchants in the Netherlands become hosts to separatist congregations, modelling what a reformed English church might be. Now, most of these communities are Presbyterian. They still wanted an all-embracing national church, just a different one, free from bishops and all the other popish compromises. There are plenty of Presbyterians in England too, most of them unhappily remaining within the national church, some of them eventually taking the dangerous step of forming clandestine communities of their own. But a few go further. England's early separatists became known as Brownists, although Robert Brown, who tried briefly to found a separatist congregation in Norwich in 1581, and then a more enduring venture in the Netherlands later in the same year, Brown had actually returned to the bosom of the Church of England by 1585. Um, this is the rather awkward memorial to him, awkward because it's in the grounds of the Anglican Church where he served for many years as its conformist minister. Brownists or independents or congregationalists didn't want to be a universal church at all. More modestly, more dangerously, they simply wanted to form godly communities of their own recognizing that the faithful would only ever be a remnant in a world filled with reprobates. So they're implicitly abandoning the whole notion of a unified Christian society. Now, these little communities hung on in exile, and the Dutch are welcoming enough, but it's hard to see what their future might be. They feared that they would eventually lose our language and our name of English. And then in the 1610s, a new possibility appeared. England was, after several false starts, beginning to establish colonies on the North American mainland. English government being what it is, the project was being done on the cheap. Settlers who funded their own colonies could buy themselves a remarkable amount of freedom, including in religion. The English Congregationalists in Leiden began negotiating just such a deal with King James I. When the Mayflower eventually sailed from Plymouth in 16... This isn't the real thing, obviously. It's the reproduction built in the 1950s, whose builders claim that it is probably quite similar to the original. Um, anyway, half of the 100 passengers on that original Mayflower were, uh, were former Dutch exiles. An American colony answered the Congregationalists' dilemma. How could they be faithful both to their consciences and to their nation if the only solution involved crossing an ocean and settling in an environment so hostile that it killed fully half 
of the settlers in their first winter. Well, so be it. The name for their settlement tells you everything. New England. It remained tiny and marginal during the 1620s. But under Charles I, a new and much larger wave of English Puritans were pushed into separatism and exile. A thousand more Congregationalist pilgrims arrived in Massachusetts in 1630. By 1640, some 20,000 had made the crossing. And they would do more than anyone else to set the religious tone of British North America and of the United States as it eventually emerged. That is, fiercely determined in their own piety, conscious of their unique calling, fully aware that they're a minority in a plural society and a godless world, preferring to pursue their own perfection rather than wait for others to join them. Now, theologically, these separatists were, or tried to be, fairly orthodox Protestants. But once you've abandoned a national church, the line becomes hard to hold. A great many questions which Protestants had generally given sort of blandly traditional answers to are being reopened. Should heresy and blasphemy be treated as crimes? Should Christians accept that warfare could sometimes be just? Could Christians legitimately swear oaths despite the Bible apparently forbidding the practice? Anyone who's committed to an all-embracing Christian society with a single national church is more or less compelled to answer yes to all of those questions. But once you've abandoned that commitment, then morally enticing but politically impractical ideas like toleration or pacifism start to beckon. Once you've been freed of the crushing responsibility to create rules that a whole society might be able to follow, the separatists could start to explore new possibilities, many of them possibilities that the Lollards had explored before them. Even that incendiary question of infant versus adult baptism starts to rear its head. Remember, the primary reason for opposing adult baptism was that it makes maintaining a universal church impossible. But the Congregationalists had already abandoned that. So if they've got scruples about infant baptism, why not indulge them? So my first two streams, separatist radicalism and perfectionist, perfectionist mystical, blend into each other. In the mid-1630s, the colony at Massachusetts endured a bitter split between a conventionally Calvinist majority and a fringe of dissidents led by this woman, the pious, well-educated midwife Anne Hutchinson. She felt that rigid legalism was cramping the gospel's true spirit just as badly in the new world as it had at home. She and her spiritualist followers were eventually thrown out, but they're welcomed into the neighboring colony of Rhode Island by Roger Williams, who had himself been expelled from Massachusetts in 1636 and was now advocating adult baptism and in this deservedly famous tract, absolute religious toleration. Denouncing radicalism was the easy part. Preventing it from spreading is a different matter. And the same is true of the third strand of radicalism, utopianism. The persistent hunch that Christian society could and should be remade 
in the light of the gospel. Already in Henry VIII's reign, a few idealists had wondered about using his royal supremacy to implement sweeping change. If you're Thomas Cromwell, that means a relatively modest and pragmatic set of reforms about fusing church and state more closely together. If you are Cromwell's excitable protege and informant Clement Armstrong, that means a wildly implausible scheme which envisages a comprehensive system of moral surveillance covering every household in England using the king's newfound spiritual authority to impose systematic godliness on his subjects. This is a world of reformation and plenty of people in it are well aware of the old saying that you should never let a crisis go to waste. As the shine begins to come off the reformers alliance with Henry VIII, more of them begin to dream of projects to build a just commonwealth. And at the center of most of those concerns is money. The reformation, like most revolutions, makes a few individuals very rich, acquiring church goods, lands, and incomes which the common people had once naively imagined belonged in some sense to them. And it rankled. When the monasteries were dissolved, almost all of the proceeds were swallowed up by Henry VIII's wars and by his courtiers. And that was not how the dissolution had been sold to the country. There had been promises that the wealth of the monasteries would be used to build roads, to endow hospitals, to found schools, even to establish new universities. The Lollards had been arguing for more than a century that Oxford and Cambridge's stranglehold on higher education needed to be broken. Lollard sympathizers had once introduced a bill into Parliament to establish 15 new universities. Now, evangelical preachers and pamphleteers started to put forward schemes of their own. These commonwealth men, as they came to be called, are not an organized party. They're a mood of rumbling discontent. Some offered modest proposals, focusing on specific laws or grievances, like the enclosure of common land. Others are more sweeping. They want wholesale redistribution of church goods, abolition of the House of Lords. Two things hold these disparate projects together. A mood of idealistic moral urgency and a sustained hostility to the clergy as a caste. From the bishops, the forked caps as they call them, through the purgatory horse leeches, the monks, to the dumb dogs, that is the ordinary parish priests, never opening their mouths to preach the gospel merely drowning in their own swinish filthiness. When Henry VIII dies and an unapologetically Protestant regime takes power under Edward VI, the Commonwealth men have their moment. They're openly encouraged by the new government. Many of their themes are picked up by leading preachers like the former Bishop Hugh Latimer, preachers who roll a moral critique of their society and its elites into a critique of the church and its corruption. A couple of years of this kind of populist Protestant politics ends in a summer of disturbances. The so-called camping time that spreads across England in the summer of 1549. Not exactly England's answer to the Peasants' War in Germany, not least because almost everywhere it ends without bloodshed, but the parallels are there. 
The key difference is that the English peasants who gathered themselves into encampments, broke down the fences that had been erected in closing common land, sent demands for redress, generally believed that the government sympathized with their concerns. And they may have been right to a degree. Lord Protector Somerset sent them soothing letters and some of the regime's leading preachers came to address the encampments. One reason that the government's conciliatory is that it's painfully aware that it just doesn't have the resources to suppress risings on this scale. Soothing noises are all they've got. Protector Somerset's horrified colleagues in government depose him in a palace coup later in the year, and that's the end of dangerous populism from the Protestant regimes. All that is left is an enduring popular memory of the good duke and a sense that the radical preachers are on the side of the people. Under Queen Elizabeth, utopian talk of this kind is not encouraged. But suppressing it doesn't make it go away. Sometimes it gets blurted out, which usually costs somebody their career or their head. Sometimes it's hidden inside coded critiques. This tract may look like a coded critique, but if you read at the bottom where it's claimed to be printed, overseas within two furlongs of a bouncing priest, you'll see that it's not very coded at all. Uh, in fact, it's printed on a clandestine press in England, and its printers led the regime a merry chase before eventually being closed down. These sorts of themes are naturally picked up by our other two groups of radicals, the spiritualists and the separatists. The regime tries to suppress utopian anger against priests and their ways by insisting that the new ministers of the Church of England are quite unlike the popish priests of previous generations. They're set apart not by sacramental ordination or tonsure or the mumbling of Latin, but by godliness, by learning, and by orthodoxy. And so, so the argument went, these ministers truly deserved the reverence and obedience which their popish predecessors had falsely claimed. You didn't need to be especially radical to be suspicious of that bait and switch, merely to notice that not all of the new Protestant ministers were everything that they were cracked up to be. Before long, radicals are starting to question the entire notion that a minister needs university education, a notion which once again supports that stranglehold of the two universities. Surely, they asked, it's better to be filled with the Holy Spirit than with human knowledge. Maybe knowledge, which puffs the educated up with delusions of grandeur, is actually an obstacle to true godliness. Maybe true Christians should go back to Martin Luther's doctrine of the priesthood of all believers and reject the idea of a separate ministerial caste completely. Now, these different contradictory radical voices, my three streams, don't constitute a single uniform radical reformation. But they're not disconnected either. They're tied together at both ends of our period. At the start, in the sense that all of these radicals stood in succession to the Lollards. I'm not claiming that a living tradition of Lollard radicalism endured throughout our period, although that is possible. There are certainly intriguing signs that the same villages, even the same families, 
that provided Lollard suspects in the 15th century were still hotspots of radicalism in the 17th. And if we can't quite see how that tradition was transmitted, that's no reason to deny its existence. More substantially, the way that the Protestant mainstream celebrated and memorialized these Lollards kept their radical heritage alive. The Protestant historian John Fox carefully recorded how Lollards had formed separatist conventicles, had argued passionately for justice for the poor, had rejected the use of oaths, had deplored any kind of established ministry, and in some cases had embraced pacifism. Fox doesn't actually endorse these views, but he doesn't condemn them or edit them out either. And it's no coincidence that Fox himself held some disturbingly radical views. In particular, his conviction, which was highly unusual for the time, that executing people for their religious convictions, no matter what those convictions might be, was wrong. For a century or more, radicals eagerly cited the Lollards whom Fox recorded as precedents for their own convictions. Still, let's not get this out of proportion. All of the dots that I've been connecting are still dots, a few scattered voices and short-lived movements. What draws them together is what happens at the end of our period, the extraordinary breakdown of the 1640s when all of these streams flow together. From the moment when Charles I is forced by military defeat to summon a parliament in 1640, up to the point when his son was restored to his vacant throne in 1660. For those 20 years, England never has a government that is both willing and able to enforce a uniform religious settlement onto the country. And so a century's worth of subterranean radicalism surges into the open. Congregationalist churches spring up as newly liberated Puritans get tired of waiting for national reformation and decide to force the pace. The Civil War of 1642-6 sharpens the mood. Middle ways vanish amidst the killing. From 1645 onwards, the reorganized parliamentary army becomes a vast armed seminary for apocalyptic radicalism. Once the war's over, it's that army which finds itself at the center of political power. To the horror of most of the nation, the radicals are on the march and no one can stop them. The most obvious consequence of this is the emergence of a swathe of new movements, some of which would become enduring denominations. This is when the Baptists, who are now, of course, one of the largest global Christian families, were born. The question of adult baptism came back with a vengeance. A minority of Congregationalists were questioning infant baptism. Meanwhile, by a quite different route, some perfectionist mystical sects were also coming to define themselves by the practice of adult baptism. These two different Baptistic communities are deeply suspicious of each other, but shared practice and the shared hatred of almost everybody else slowly forces them together and they uneasily come to profess a shared identity as Baptists. That name is probably given to them by the other truly significant enduring sect to emerge during these years, the Quakers, who took all the radical themes that we've been tracking to their logical endpoint. 
They spiritualized most conventional Christian doctrine. They abandoned any conventionally structured church, ministry, sacraments. They taught a radical doctrine of human equality. They professed pacifism, although not quite as steadily as they liked to remember in later years. They swept aside all religion in favor of the light of Christ, which they found dwelling inside everyone. From a standing start in the late 1640s, by 1660, there are tens of thousands of Quakers, and their zealous idealism is already starting to spread across the world. But for each denomination that endured, there were dozens of movements that flared up and died away or were subsumed into the wider culture. These are the years that produced the first ever campaign for representative democracy, the so-called levelers, or an agrarian commune trying to create a world of total equality, virtue, and reason by sharing labor and abolishing private property, the diggers, or a mystical movement of self-denial, abandoning any kind of religious practice while waiting for a new dispensation from God, the seekers, or a revolutionary utopian sect hoping to inaugurate an apocalyptic kingdom of the saints, the fifth monarchists, and a great many other groups, real or imagined, dedicated to particular prophets or to restoring Judaism or to nudism or to moral perfectionism or transcending morality altogether. And collectively, their legacy, and this is the real legacy, of England's radical reformation is irreducible pluralism. Religious toleration of some kind has been an inescapable fact of English life ever since, whether as a point of principle or as a grudging concession to reality. Like it or not, England's religious identity was fractured beyond repair, and that is where we still are. Let me finish with two specific legacies of the 1640 to 60 period that underline the general point. First of all, the Jews. England's long-established Jewish population had been expelled by royal order in 1291, and for nearly four centuries, the practice of Judaism in England was illegal. The fact that to be English was by definition to be Christian is what made the creation of the Church of England possible. By the mid-17th century, the prospering, prospering Jewish mercantile community in the Netherlands was creating a commercial incentive to lift the ban. But the actual decision is made by Oliver Cromwell, England's Lord Protector from 1653 to 58, a Congregationalist whose personal commitment to toleration was partial, certainly doesn't extend to Catholics, but was also real. Like many other radicals, Cromwell believed that Christ's second coming would be preceded by the mass conversion of the Jews to Christianity. Maybe readmitting the Jews to England, as he did in 1656 in response to this petition, would help to precipitate that. Well, it hasn't worked out that way. But it has meant that ever since, England has been not just a multi-denominational, but also a multi-faith country. A second legacy again touches on Judaism and on the close ties between the radical Protestant groups in England and the Netherlands. Adam Boreel, the most important leader of the Dutch rationalist group known as the Collegians, was an Anglophile. 
He'd spent a crucial formative period in the 1630s amongst radical groups in England. In the 1650s, English Quakers paid a return visit. They sent missionaries to Amsterdam and opened channels to the collegians. In particular, these Quaker missionaries befriended this young Dutch Jew, whom the collegians had taken in after he'd been expelled from his synagogue. This man translated a Quaker tract into Hebrew in the hope of converting Jews to Quakerism. The Quakers wrote that he was very friendly to their cause, and his own later writings show significant signs of debts to Quaker criticisms of the Bible and of conventional Christianity. His name was Baruch Spinoza. Spinoza is justly famous as the philosophical founding father of modern atheism and rationalism. But his debt to the radical Christian traditions represented by the Collegians and the Quakers is profound. His ethical vision doesn't so much reject traditional Judaism and Christianity as transcend them. And in doing so, he is true to that radical Reformation tradition represented by his friends. He's a reminder of a truth that applies not just throughout the English-speaking world, but even beyond it, which is that all of us, believer or unbeliever alike, and whether we like it or not, are children of one or other of the English Reformations. Thank you. Thanks so much, Professor Ryrie. And the first question before we get into the questions about this lecture today is, what's your next lecture series going to be about? Oh, yes, indeed. Thank you for, 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 for asking. Um, I've got another series of six lectures coming next year, which are on the early global spread of, of, of Protestantism. So we'll be um, starting by looking at that, the problem of how that happened and then moving around the world, looking at the, at the Americas, at the Middle East, at Asia, at the involvement in the slave trade, um, and then finishing by thinking about the encounter between missionaries and empire. Thanks very much. Now, turning to your lecture today, um, I'm going to start with a, uh, a question from... Peter Boyle, he says, I was taught as a child that the Bible did support infant baptism because it says that whole families were baptised and whole families presumably included some infant children? That is the argument that has often been made in, in defence of it. Um, and it remains a hotly contested point, so I don't want to, to walk too much into the, into the minefield. I think what's, what's fair to say is that, yes, there are references to households. I think it's households rather than families being baptised. It's reasonable to guess that that includes infants, but it's not a cast-iron case. And it's certainly true that all of the baptisms that are specifically described in the New Testament are of adults or at least of people who are in a position to make a, a, a conscious decision of their own. So one can argue that either way, but I think, the, I, I, you know, I, I myself am an Anglican and my sons were baptized as infants, so I've, I guess I've chosen my side. Um, uh, yet, yeah, I mean, the Baptists have at least got a point. Okay. Thank you. Um, is it true that the first colony in America to give legal protection to religious toleration was Maryland, founded by the Catholic Lord Baltimore? 
It's certainly true that um, the, the Marylanders write that into their, into their constitution. Um, and so, you know, that, that's a, it's, a, it's a proud claim that Maryland makes, and it's, and it's not wrong. Um, uh, if we had a representative of, Ro of Rhode Island here, I think they would want to advance the, 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 the claim for the priority of that colony. And again, this is a fight that I don't want to get, get into, the, into the middle of. Um, I think that the strict priority between the two may be less important than the different approaches that, they're, that, that the two sides are taking. From, from Maryland, the, the, the wish to create a space which is safe for Catholicism and therefore, by extension for, for others, pushes them in this one direction. The Rhode Islanders who are trying to create a, a, a refuge for, for radicalism, which is not a very Catholic-friendly place, but is, is open to different kinds of, of, of people around the fringes of the Christian community, takes them in a, in a, in a different direction. And there's indeed something else happening again in Pennsylvania. Thank you. Would it be fair to say that the wave of Lollard ideas you've described washed up in the Putney debates? That's a real stretch. Um, you know, the Putney debates is this, this moment in the, the wake of the English Civil War when um, it, it only relatively recently discovered, it's forgotten for, for a couple of centuries, um, when the, the, the levelers in the New Model Army are putting forward the case for something which, to our modern eyes, looks very much like representative democracy um, and universal male suffrage. Uh, there are, at best, echoes of some Lollard themes, but it requires um, some pretty you know, careful examination from the eye of faith to draw a direct link there. I'd love to believe that that was so, but I'm not aware of any evidence making the, making the direct link. Another question here about French Huguenots. Um, mm. What was the place of their, the French Huguenots who fled Catholic France for England, among other places, beginning in the mid-16th century, where do they fit within the radical and reforming Protestant groups in England in this period? Uh, that's, a, that's a really good question, and there's several... I, I, I don't want to spend too long talking about it because there's a lot, potentially a lot to say. Um, in the earliest years of the Reformation, so, you know, in, in, in the mid-16th century, the presence of this, you know, relatively small number of both French and Dutch refugees. Um, they're really important in helping to seed um, the, the English Reformation, but much more within the, the, the kind of reformed Calvinist mainstream. Um, you know, certainly the French, the Dutch, a slightly more eclectic group, uh, tend predominantly to come within, with, with, within that, that group. Um, and indeed, thereafter, as the Huguenots establish this their sort of tenuous um, legal position in France after the end of the Wars of Religion in, in, in the 1590s, um, become pretty tightly defined within that Calvinist orthodoxy. So they're not really pushing into these these, these radical themes. But then there's a, a there's a big wave of, of Huguenot immigration into England in the 1680s and 90s, after the the toleration for Huguenots in France is revoked by Louis XIV in 1685, 
Um, it produces, I think, proportionately the largest wave of immigrants that England has ever received. Um, and you know, lots of these people show up and are, are, are integrating themselves into the lives of the English church. Many of them, most of them, are in theological terms entirely orthodox Calvinists and are at least willing to fit into the existing mainstream denominations, the Church of England or the, the mainstream dissenting denominations. But there are more radical voices amongst them. I mean, the most famous of those would be the group known as the French Prophets, uh, who in the wake of the Camisard Rebellion in the early 18th century, in the, um, 1706-1707, are talking up um, apocalyptic prophecies um, which, you know, they, they stir up a, a short-lived but genuine excitement. The Bishop of Worcester is on their side, as if that's a, 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 a sign of reaching to the heart of the English establishment. Um, so they, the, the contribution that Huguenots make to this story at various stages is very, very considerable, but it pushes in, in, in several different directions. Got one final question. What is the reason for Unitarianism's survival in the midst of such a profusion of beliefs? Unitarianism, I should probably have mentioned, um, is one of the, perhaps one of the natural consequences of this sort of radical proliferation. This is uh, the umbrella term for a series of different Christian or Christian derived movements which question traditional um, Christian Trinitarian theology, um, and which usually involves um, denying the divinity of Jesus Christ, and that has various fairly significant knock-on effects for other aspects of, 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 of Christianity. It is there in the radical mix during the, the, the mid-17th century. Anti-Trinitarianism, as it would be called then, is one of the themes that's emerging for all the toleration of the, the, the mid-17th century regimes, that is something they don't like, and anti-Trinitarians do find themselves subject to a degree of persecution. One of the things that makes the anti-Trinitarian or Unitarian story different from some of these others is the way that it feeds into the Enlightenment and early deism and rationalism as that begins to, to burgeon from the late 17th and into the 18th century. It seems to the, that mood, of that, that intellectual mood, like a, a, a very sort of rationalist form of Christianity. And you can see some, some folks who are picking up on Spinoza's ideas being very drawn towards that, that kind of a way of thinking. So you know, I, I don't want to suggest that Unitarianism is, is simply... A, a, a staging post on the way to atheism, as has sometimes been said. It's clearly a tradition with its own authenticity and, 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 and you know, genuine spirituality. But it is the case that for a number of people, it does serve that purpose. And it's certainly seen by its enemies as, as serving that purpose. So it, it becomes woven into the story in that kind of a way. Um, thank you so much, Professor Rory, for um, the fascinating lecture. Thank you, for, thank you all for coming. We hope you enjoyed the lecture. We'll be sending you a link to the uh, video and transcript in a couple of days' time. Um, please do sign up to our newsletter to hear about the next series, which we, we are, we're sure is going to be fascinating too. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs>